Well, we're continuing in uh, the life of David and his Psalms. So I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses to get us started. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But if I refrain from this, so that no man will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we just ask as we look at these ancient words, not because they're ancient, because, but because they're your words. And we pray that they will indeed impart to our hearts your truth, because we want to hear your voice. So we pray that our hearts be open to your word. And we ask that your spirit speak to us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love Warren Wiersbe's outline um, for 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. Um, in verses 1 through 6, Paul speaks of the glory of his visions and revelation, even mentioning a personal visit to heaven. It's because Corinth just uh, was so excited by that and the false teachers were boasting in their things. And, and he says, you know, uh, if I was to boast, I really could because of, of the greatness of what God has revealed to me. Um, God had greatly honored Paul with these experiences. In verses 7 and 8, Paul speaks of God's goodness, how God had given him a constant or recurring thorn in the flesh. And don't think of a rose thorn. This is actually a word for an impaling stake where like the Assyrians used to take a person and impale him on a stake and leave him there uh, to die. Um, and God had, had dropped the hedge of protection and allowed Satan to, to buffet him, or here it says torture him, but uh, it means to strike 
him with the fist, and it, and it has the idea of a constant, a reoccurring, distressful situation. We're not sure what it was, but we are sure of the purpose. He says, to keep me from exalting myself. And the idea has to lift oneself up with the sense of, of doing it excessively. And so the NIV translates it, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul says the statement twice in verse 7. Because from the date of his writing, 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to have another 14 years of service. And God doesn't want Paul hamstrung or crippled um, by uh, the, the experiences he had. And despite three occasions when Paul pled with the Lord to remove it, God did not. Instead, he used it to humble Paul. And then Paul tells of God's grace. God would help Paul in his life and service, providing God's power in Paul's weakness. And that promise, Paul says, I'm content. I'm content if I'm viewed as a weak person. I'm content with the insults where they say, well, Paul's letters are mighty, but when he actually comes, he's not much. He says, I'm content with all of those things. If by those things, the power of God flows through me for the service of Christ. There is a principle stated in Roman, or James 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, or I'm sorry, James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The statement is a paraphrase of Proverbs 3.34, but the concept is first mentioned in Psalm 138, verse 6, which is a psalm of David's. See, David knew this truth, and David knew the process that Paul's describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because he had been through it. Years ago, there was a comedian by the name of Rodney Dangerfield. And his notable catchphrase was, I don't get no respect. One of the one-liners he told as an example of that was, I told my psychiatrist that everyone hates me. And he said, I was being ridiculous. Everyone hadn't met me yet. <laughs> well... David, as a young man, could identify with Rodney Dangerfield. He did not get any respect. When Samuel came to the family and invites them to come with him to a feast, no one in the family thought it was necessary to go get David. Because obviously David, this doesn't apply to David. He's just the runt. When his brothers went to fight, and David brought food to his brothers at the battle, Eliab, David's oldest brother said, and when David's saying, oh, who's going who's gonna, to uh, take care of this giant because he's, he's reproaching the armies of the living God? He said to him, and whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and wickedness of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. No respect. I suspect I would have said to him, what battle? Every time Goliath comes, you all run away. Which probably explains why my brother pounded on me so much. <laughs> In the eyes of Saul, 
You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him, for you are but a youth. No respect. In the eyes of Goliath, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. No respect. There's only one person who saw David in all his potential, uh, a young man who had seen him when they were looking for someone to play uh, for Saul uh, because of the evil spirit coming upon him. He said, uh, David, the son of Jesse, a skillful a musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. And I think God gave this man a, a view of David uh, because David wanted us to know his perspective of David. People who have the gift of seeing the potential in others are a real gift. And so here's David. He gets no respect. Um, and then God gives him glory. He put David on Israel's radar. He was anointed the future king by Samuel, the last of the great judges. He fought the greatest single combat of all time. There's numerous people who have fought single combats, but in 2023, whose story you think is going to be told the most? David and Goliath, 3,000 years after it happened. He had Saul's favor. If you go back to uh, uh, 1 Samuel, and uh, we'll be in chapter 18, we'll look at some of these things that, that became uh, God gave to David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse um, 2. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. He had Saul's favor. Saul said, this is a man I want here. I'm going to keep him close beside me. I'm going to give him responsibility. And he enjoyed Saul's favor. Last week we looked uh, verses 1, 3 through 4 of, of chapter 18, his friendship with Jonathan. Uh, drop down to verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Flip over to verse 13. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. And so he's a successful commander of the army. He's given a thousand men. Uh, under his command, just like Jonathan had a thousand men under his command. He was popular. We read those verses. He went out and, and people um, uh, were pleased by him. And, and then we come down to verse 6. Um, and it says, it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with joy and musical instruments. The women sang as they played. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. He was popular. People knew who David was and they thought highly of him and everything David did um, brought more popularity. Verse 16 but all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. And then he, he married 
King Saul's daughter, Michael. Uh, King Saul had offered his oldest daughter, Merib, to him. And David said, no, no, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. Now, as we're going to see, this is actually Saul having an opportunity to try to kill David. But um, finally, he, he sees in verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Um, and so he marries Michael. How would you like your teenage son to get that kind of glory suddenly? Favored in the whole nation? Those who are, who are the most powerful view him with favor. He's now friends with some of the most powerful people in the nation. He's uh, married to Miss America. That's heady stuff. Real heady stuff. And just like Saul or Paul, um, it's easy for it to become a substitute for trusting God. It's easy for that kind of stuff to keep your eyes on the horizontal instead of the vertical. And for David to be the man that God needs him to be, David is going to have, have to have a deep faith in the living God. Swindoll calls these things crutches that are going to keep David from walking the walk of faith. And so God, in his goodness, takes it all away. See, God is in a battle for David's heart. God wants David's heart to be anchored by faith in God's gracious power rather than the trappings of glory. And you know what? God's still engaged in that battle today for your heart. And God does this by his goodness, by removing all the strengths that David's glory brought him. And so we find Saul's favor turning to jealous suspicion and fear. Um, in chapter 18, look at verse 8. Then Saul became very angry about David killing his ten thousands. And this saying displeased him, for he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Drop down to verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 14, David was prospering in his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. Saul's favor turns. And the result is he tries to kill David. Look at verse 11. Saul thought, hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. <laughs> when Saul was, when the, the evil spirit came upon Saul, they bring David in to play for him. And one time Saul says, well, I can end this right now. Throws a spear, a javelin at David. Misses. And he does it a second time. And then he, he plots uh, to kill 
David. Um, look at chapter 19, uh, verse 10. Uh, well, in chapter 19, look at uh, 18. Um, look at... Um, Verse 25, Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemy. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He said, I'm going to set David up. I'll ask this for a dowry. If you really, if you really don't feel worthy, well, you can do something to, to earn the right to marry my daughter, Michael. And, and it's an attempt um, to kill him. And then over in chapter 19, again, it says, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence. So the spear, uh, he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul's favor has turned into um, uh, violent rage. And he attempts to kill David three times that, that is very evident because it's by his own hand and, and he's trying a, along the way to persuade others to put David in a situation where, where David can die. He takes away Saul's favor. He takes away David's popularity. It, it said uh, earlier that David... Um, all of Saul's servants loved David. But now Saul's servants, some of them are choosing the present king over the coming king. And so they join with it and they come to David. Saul sends him and says, hey, tell David he really wants you to marry Michael. And, and they come back and report David's words to Saul. And Saul says, well, go tell him this. And, and they're involved in trying to bring David down. Some of these very servants that once were, oh, David, he's really something. And now they're, they're helping to plot his death. Later we'll see in chapter 19, when he flees to Samuel, someone will tell Saul right where David's hiding. There are people out there that once sang David's praises, but now they're seeking to help bring him down. You know, it still happens today, doesn't it? Where people choose the king of this present, king of this world, in place of the coming king. And then there's the event where he actually tries to kill David at his own home. Verse 11. Then Saul of chapter 19, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window. Apparently their home was on the wall uh, like Rahab's uh, house was. And he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. And when the messengers entered and behold, the household idol was on the bed with a quilt of goat's hair at its head. 
So Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael lies to save her own life. Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? David threatened me with death. And so I had to help him escape. And so this marriage with Michael is, is gone. She's helped him escape, but, but she doesn't go with him. And she protects herself, which one can understand that. But their relationship is, is never the same. And then chapter 19, verse 18 David fled and escaped and came to Samuel and Ramah and told him all Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Nioth. And so he comes to Samuel under Samuel's protection. He's the one who anointed him. And so Samuel brings him to Nioth and someone tells Saul where to find him. So Saul sends a group of men and God interrupts by putting his spirit on them and they prophesy. So Saul sends a second group of men. Same thing happens. He sends a third group of men. Same thing happens. So Saul comes himself and the same thing happens. The spirit of God comes on him and he, and he prophesies and he's, uh, they're so caught up by the spirit that they, they can't do anything <laughs> except prophesy. And so God rescues him, but David says, Samuel's an old man. This is not a permanent solution to my problem. He's going to die. Then what's, what's going to happen? And so David leaves. Chapter 20, verse 1, Then David fled from Nioth to Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father? He's seeking my life. And we looked at this last week. Jonathan says, No, that's not true. And, and he defends David. And in verse 33, um, then Saul heard the spirit, Jonathan, to strike him down. So Jonathan knew his father had decided to put David to death. Earlier, he had defended David the first two times when, when Saul tried to kill him. And David said, I think your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan said, oh, it's not so. And he went and he spoke to his father. And his father vowed he wouldn't kill David. But shortly after that, he made the third attempt. And now David says, there's not even safety in my own home, Jonathan. There's not even safety with, with Samuel. And there's no safety with Jonathan either because he can't save David. And so verse 42 of chapter 20. Um, Jonathan said to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. And he arose and departed while Jonathan went back into the city. And David is alone. Saul's favor is gone. The popularity of the people and the servants of Saul are, are gone. Michael, being the king's son-in-law, it's going to provide no protection. Samuel really can't provide long-term protection. Jonathan, as his best friend, can't protect him from Saul. God strips it all away in his goodness. Because these things could be substitutes for trusting God.
And, and this cycle is going to be recurring. And actually, this cycle isn't done because Gabe's going to finish this first cycle because David's going to go a step lower yet. But here he is. Where do you go? Where do you hide from the king? Who do you trust since some of the servants that once were very, he thought, trustworthy have turned on him? When unknown people are betraying where he is. When the people he trusts most are too weak to save him. Who do you turn to? Well, there's God. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. This psalm, according to the heading, is, says, a, a Mitchum of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. He's in his house. This is before he goes to Samuel. This is before he goes to Jonathan. He's in his house. Michael comes to him and says, there's men outside watching the house. If you're still here in the morning, you're a dead man. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to pray. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call upon me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you have not known. Sometimes in prayer, God reveals things to us you can't learn any other way. And in this psalm, David is going to take up um, the situation, the first stanza, verses 1 through 5. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. We have the plea. Deliver me. Set me on high. Deliver me. Save me. In these verses, you can hear the desperate situation. Uh, one commentator writes, these words come gushing out in breathless haste. David has no one. Either God is real and able, or he's a dead man. With his back to the wall, he cries out to God, deliver me, save me. Set me in a place of safety. What's the situation? Well, at the end of um, uh, verse 2, save me from men of bloodshed, for behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. You know the situation, God. Bloodthirsty men lay in wait to kill me. Then you have David's innocence. David knows that God knows men's hearts. And so he says, not for my transgression nor my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. David says, I'm not guilty. When he, in chapter 20, shortly after this, when he, he comes to Jonathan, he says, what's my sin? What's my iniquity? What have I done against your father? And, and Jonathan says, you haven't done anything. You are not treasonous. You are not disloyal. You're not trying to undercut my father. 
as Saul believes. And you hear the desperation of the need at the end of verse four. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, awake to punish the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. God, wake up. This is desperate. Take action. And sometimes it's that desperate. There's nobody but you. Have you ever had that experience? There is no answer left that you can think of. No resource left. If God's not God, it's over. And so he cries out to God. And the, the very end of this verse 5, he talks about punish all the nations. How good that will be. As he's there, God shows him things that he didn't know, that he hadn't experienced. I am big enough and I can protect you. And when you're king, I can protect Israel against the nation. Why? Because he lists the names of God. Verse 5, you, O Lord, that's the covenant name, Yahweh, the covenant name. I am who I am. I'm the self-sufficient God. The God of hosts, I am Lord of the armies of heaven. I am the God of Israel. I am the God who committed himself to Israel. I'll be your God. You will be my people. This is the God I come to. And God is stretching David. David has the words. But now God's stretching David's view of God. What an amazing thing. It's true. Have you ever had that experience? Well, you know the truth about God? And God puts you in a situation, and by gum, it's true. That's exactly who he is. And that's what David is experiencing here. And then he says, Selah. Think about that. See, David's giving us the insight. We just read, oh, they were so clever. She hid that thing on the bed and let him down by the wall. But no, God is involved in this. And David is crying out to God. And that's what makes David, a man after God's own heart. God is making him not an inch deep and a mile wide. That's what glory does. But he's making him deep and wide. And so he comes to the second stanza, verses 6 through 13. And he, he views those, those men, a proper view of his enemies, they return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city. Behold, they belt forth with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? They're like a pack of wild dogs, arrogantly thinking themselves immune from detection and judgment. And then there in verses 8 and 9, there's a proper view of God. They said, who hears? God does. God says, you think the one who made the ear doesn't hear? And so verse 8, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. God is sovereign. God is strong. This whole pack of men who are surrounding my house, 
that I can't defeat. God laughs at it. You ever been attacked by a three-year-old? You don't run in terror. You kind of chuckle to yourself and let him hit you a few times. God laughs. And David says, because of his strength, I will watch for you. Because you're strong, I'm going to watch for you. For God is my stronghold. Then he says, his confidence. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look with triumph on my foes. God, who loves me, will give me help and victory. William MacDonald says, uh, gives this paraphrase, my God with his loving kindness will come to meet me at every corner. I don't know what's around the corner. <laughs> Some circumstance, but I know who's around the corner. God is around the corner. And he's there with his faithful love. That's what loving kindness means, hesed. He's there with his faithful love. And whatever the circumstance, come around the corner, oh, but God's there. God's there. And he's my stronghold. And then he gives a unique request. Do not slay them, and the idea is immediately, or my people will forget. Instead, scatter them by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield, on account of the sin of their mouths and the word of their lips. Let them even be caught in their pride and on account of the curses and lives which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. God, don't, don't bring them down immediately. Judge them in a way that teaches. Not a quick destruction, so the people of God don't forget, but one that teaches Israel and the nations that God is just and sovereign. Think about that. And then he comes to the last stanza, the conclusion. His enemies, they return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city, they wander about for food, they growl and are not satisfied. What a shock. They're going to come in and I'm gone. <laughs> they, sure, they were sure they had me. And so they come back in the city and they're searching around, they're growling, but they're never going to be satisfied. Because I have a stronghold. Verse 16, but as for me, that's the ninth time. If you go through the Psalms of David up to this point, this is the ninth time he says, but as for me. As for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness, your faithful love in the morning. I'm going to still be here in the morning. And what am I going to be thinking? My God is faithful and my God is strong. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me faithful love. I sing. See, God is enlarging his view of God. Why do you read the scriptures? We don't just read the scriptures for help today, for today. We get that. It'll, it'll convict us of sin. It'll, it'll comfort our hearts. It'll encourage us. But it is something that you hide in your heart 
for a future day of need. See, David has the right theology, the right view of God. He doesn't completely know it's completely full. And, and when you see, hear the Psalms for, for Gabe's uh, in his in the end of this first cycle, he's going to even know more about God. Here, he's saying the right words, and he's, he's got a, a view of God. And, and it, he has the right theology, but God is going to deepen that and um, stretch that. So what lessons should we pull out of this? for today. Those who want to go to Israel don't want me to go another half hour. <laughs> There's a battle going on for your heart. Satan wants you to, uh, he wants to offer you things as a substitute for trusting God and keeping you focused on the horizontal. I'm okay because I have a great job. What if God takes that job away from you? Are you still okay? Yeah, you are. Because God is your refuge and strength. And sometimes God has to take things away because they, these things become crutches. These things become substitutes for us trusting God. And it keeps our eyes on the horizontal. And God wants your heart anchored by faith in him. How's your heart? Some of us will face trials this week that we come around the corner and there it is and we didn't expect it and oh my. Remember David's statement. God's also around the corner waiting in his loving kindness. See him and the circumstances will shrink to their right state. In his goodness, God works to stretch our view of who he is and to teach us humility so we can access his gracious help. Not only does, does God give the humble his grace, another proverb says God teaches the humble. See, when I'm not full of myself, when I'm not looking at all I have, but rather I'm forced to, see God and depend upon God, that's a teachable moment when God can come alongside. Don't miss God's teachable moments. David is going to fulfill the work of God in his generation. And this is the beginning of the work in God's life that made him that man. There's a cost to following the Lord Jesus. But it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who David was. We thank you you saw the potential in David. We thank you that you're willing to work with David, even to strip away everything that he might see you and learn to trust in you. And as we go through this in David's life, Lord, work with us. Help us. Help us to, to be humble that we might know your grace. Be with those that are going to Israel today. Give them safety. 
Give them a time, a special time with yourself as they're there. And Lord, we don't have to go to Israel to have a special time with you. So give everyone else here this week something that says, I'm your God. I'm faithful and I love you because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.